Uh, well, if you turn, uh, just crack, and op- crack open the front end of your Bibles uh, with me. We'll turn to Genesis chapter 1. I assume it's on page 1 of the Pew Bible, but I didn't actually check, so... I had the privilege uh, on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of being with the youth of our Presbytery at their winter conference and uh, being invited to be their guest speaker. And uh, ultimately, what I have to say after that is, um, A, I hope they were as blessed by my being there as I was uh, being amongst them. It was just such a privilege to be uh, among the many young people uh, in our our church and our sister churches, to be encouraged by their faithful uh, pursuits of the Lord and their desire to know him and serve him. Uh, in all relationships of life. So uh, if you get a chance to be a counselor at some point or to to serve them in one of their day outings, I would encourage you to take up that opportunity and be encouraged and blessed uh, by those youth. Uh, Well, I was assigned the topic of Christ as the light of the world, and I think it's a beautiful uh, topic for us to start our year with and a a beautiful place to go to start the year with, the very first page of our Bibles. So let's uh, read uh, a few passages from Genesis chapter 1. So listen, and we'll hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then we'll jump down to verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And we'll finish by beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And that's where we'll end the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Well, I don't know how many of you uh, in your spare time are artists, or perhaps you've been out to Brown County and watched people uh, carving up logs into beautiful uh, statues or painting new images, or, or if you've ever simply stood back and watched somebody else creating uh, a piece of art. It's, it's something that I particularly enjoy is just looking at visual art, maybe uh, in, in the couple of seconds of spare time that I have now and again, finding a YouTube video and watching how some piece of, of art was made. It's just incredible to see uh, great masterpieces come together and, and how they're made. And I actually really enjoy learning a little bit about the, the person of the artist and what's prompted them, what sparked them to create this particular piece of art. Because oftentimes when you see a great artist make a great piece of art, you can see just a little bit of themselves going into it. You can see their circumstances kind of painted into this work of art. For instance, if you look at a Leonardo da Vinci painting, you'll see that he, he really studied things. And you, you could look at a painting like that and just know that's a man who understood something a little bit more than the other people around him in an age where people were trying to understand a little bit more than they did before. Likewise, if you look at a Picasso painting, if you look at his early paintings, uh, beautiful Renaissance-like pieces of art, and then you get to the end of his life and you go, what happened to that guy? <laughs> Uh, because you can see that as he went through life, he, he learned and he viewed life differently. And as he painted, he painted a part of himself and a part of his understanding of life into his paintings. Well, as we arrive at Genesis chapter 1, we get to witness the coming together of the greatest masterpiece ever made by the greatest master ever. And there's a lot for us to learn as we look at this creation account. There's so much for us to see. And what I'd like us to see tonight is the fact that when God created, he put a piece of himself in creation, just like a great artist would. And so what we need to learn as we come to Genesis 1 and, and view it through this lens of looking at God's light, God's light in this world, we need to know that Christians, we must reflect God's character through Christ, who alone is the true light and image of God. Well, as we do that, the first thing we should see in this passage, uh, we see in these opening two sections that we read earlier, you have to remember that God's light reflects God's character. Right? The very first thing that God puts in this world that he's making is designed to reflect a part of who he is. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Right? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. This, this idea is one, uh, somebody once described it as not just nothing, but chaotic nothing, right? If you, could, if you could take this just pitch blackness, it's so disordered, so out of line, right? It's not just without, uh, it's not just void, but it's actually without form. And so when God comes and he speaks in the midst of this chaotic nothingness, he actually brings it to order by his presence and by his word. Right? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I think we've heard that phrase so much nowadays that it doesn't strike us as odd, 
But if you go back and read the creation accounts of all of the nations around Israel, these, these ancient uh, ideas of how creation happened, they all thought that since there are so many gods, these gods must be warring over each other, and when one god is, is hovering over uh, the face of the waters, if you will, there's the god of the water, of this chaos and everything. And these two gods, they come together and they wrestle. And they battle, and sometimes it's for an afternoon, and sometimes it's for five millennia. Uh, but whatever it is, they're going to duke it out until one of them finally wins. But that's not our God. Our God speaks and says, let there be light. And there was light. It's just done. The light conquers without any pushback, because that's who God is. And the very next thing, the observation that God makes is God saw that the light was good. And when God makes something, it's a reflection of who he is. So it doesn't only go out and conquer darkness, but it is good because it is made by a good God. There is no question, no struggle. And aren't we glad that light works that way? When the power goes out and we grab our flashlight in an emergency as long as the batteries are charged, we, we don't go, okay, work for me this time, <laughs> right? And I hope that this pushes back the darkness. No, you flip the light and you know that when light is present, darkness is going to go away. And that's exactly what God teaches us on this very first opening day of creation, that our God is a conquering God. And when he puts light in the world, it is a conquering light. And he does the same thing, actually, with these lights that he puts in verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Uh, A number of commentators have pointed out the interesting use of this word light here. It's actually more akin to the word light bearer. God has created light on day one, and now we get down to the fourth day of creation, and God is, is putting some kind of vessel to use this light, to broadcast it, right? to, to be a delegate, if you will, of what God's light is. And then he sets these in the expanse of the heavens, and note that they, they have a very important job. This light conquers, but this light also knows what to leave alone, just like God does. Look back with me at verse four of chapter one. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And if we look back at the verses we just read, verses 14 and 15, God actually says that these lights in the expanse of the heavens are to separate the day from the night. So where God knows what darkness is and what light is and exactly where it should be at what time, God also put forth a delegate in the sky, a light bearer, to separate the light from the darkness, to separate the day from the night. And the incredible thing here is that, uh, right, it seems uh, so obvious to us that light has its place in the daytime and darkness has its place in the nighttime. But it's a reminder that, right, if if we were little kids, maybe, designing the earth, right? We, our little kids need night lights. Right? Sometimes we need night lights if we're outside taking the trash out <laughs> and coming back to the home, right? We, we don't want to live in a place where there is no darkness. But God knows exactly what we need to be in reliance on him and in his light. And so God doesn't just make a time of eternal day 
But God makes day and he makes night. He makes light and he makes a time of darkness that we might rely on him. But what's more, God actually places these two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. So God has not only placed these delegates here, but he's, he's placed a delegate in the nighttime as well. Even in times of great darkness, God has put his light there as a reminder that he's the one who separated it. That he knows where darkness is and he knows what darkness is and he knows darkness's place. And even in the midst of great darkness, there is a light that shines to reflect God's character and God's authority over all things. And the very last thing we should note about these lights uh, is that not only are they conquering just like God, they are discerning just like God, but these lights will endure just like our God does. In verse 14, we read that these will be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God doesn't just set this light in the sky to burn for just a little while, but he sets this light in the sky for all of time that is going to come, so that we can know and keep track of everything that's happening because God put that there for that purpose. When Edison finally patented his 3,000th light bulb design, it broke records as far as how, how long any bulb could burn. It could burn longer than 14 hours, which is the previous record. It burned 15 hours. <laughs> and God says, my light bulb that I place for you in the sky is going to be a lot longer than 15 hours because I can see further than that in the future and I can see what you need and where you need light and when you need it and how long it's going to last and you need reminders of days and years and signs and seasons because when I put that seventh day there, that day of rest, right, I've given it to you to point to eternal rest and you need to be reminded of that. And I'm giving you a light by which you can be reminded of it. So this, this eternal reminder. Right, this all sounds so big and so, so grand and so large scale. And it is. It's the creation of the universe. Right? But all of these things are just little pointers, little encouragements to us. Right? That God has conquered the darkness. So when life feels dark and when you feel like things are encroaching in about you and like there is no hope and like God's light has gone out, you need to remember that God's light does these three things. It conquers, it separates darkness from light, and it endures forever because God didn't just start the world spinning and walk away, but he has kept an eternal reminder in the heavens day and night forever that he is indeed reigning and he has put these light-bearing delegates there to remind us that he is reigning because they rule over the day and the night. God will not stop, as we say, as sure as the sun shall rise. But we have to remember that God has delegated it, and it is his right to do so, and it is God's right to do that with everything that is his. And so we must do what what point two is on your outline. We have to honor what is God's as God's. That which belongs to God belongs to God and not to us. God made this light to rule over the day, the earth by day, and over the earth by night. And now something else comes along as we look at verse 26, this last portion that we read, right? The crown of creation comes along. 
as we are called, as mankind is called. And it's very important for us to understand just just one more thing about the ancient world. It was extremely common as you wandered about the ancient world, uh, when you come to the boundary of an empire, uh, oftentimes the rulers of an empire would set up a statue of themselves along the boundaries of an empire. Uh, so that as somebody was, was coming in to trade or to uh, perhaps even to wage war, uh, but even if you were coming to live in a new place, as soon as you confronted the statue, you confronted the idea that this is the person who rules here. Right? This is the leader. This is the authority. And it's not whoever I knew back there. Also, if I ever see a guy that looks like this, I should probably run. <laughs> uh, but that, that boundary marker, that idea that this is the place where I rule, is the kind of thing that God has set up in the sky. He set up the sun, moon, and stars to rule the earth by day and by night. So he set up this sort of reflection of what his character is, this conquering and discerning and enduring character is set up in the expanse of the heavens. We read in very verse one that the Lord God made the earth, the heavens, and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And these two things, he set a light-bearing delegate in the boundaries of the expanse. All of this is mine. But as we come to verses 26 and 27, we read a similar thing. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this word for image is that idea, this, this idea that God has placed a picture of himself, a self-portrait, if you will, of the character of God, not only in the heavens, but on the earth as well. So God is saying, right, everything in the heavens is mine. And he's also saying, here's the boundary of creation. I'm placing man in my image here. Everything on earth is mine. And I've put a delegate to rule here as well. And in fact, that's what he does. In verse 26, we read that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, right? This this list of what we get to rule over, what we get to have dominion over is a great list. In fact, it covers everything of day two of creation, day three of creation, day five of creation, day six of creation, but you'll see that it leaves off a couple of things that are very, very important. It leaves off day one and day four of creation. This light, which God put up in the skies as a reflection of his character and as a delegate of himself, that light does not get ruled over by you and me. That light has dominion over the days and years and the seasons and the days and the nights, but you don't, and I don't. And that's a really hard lesson for us to remember sometimes. We, we come to January 1st of a brand new year. We have 364 new days as soon as we get home and get to bed tonight to start this year. And already that feels like a countdown. Already it feels like I've set out my New Year's resolution and now I only have this much time to try to figure it out. Or I've set my new Bible study plan and I hope that I don't miss a day because if I do, the clock is already ticking. Whatever it may be, we know that this timer is counting down. But in fact, this is not what God is trying to say. God has control over these. God is the ruler over the sun and the moon and the stars, not you. 
and not me, and not the President of the United States or the King of England. Nobody else has authority over that but God alone. And so when we get pushed and tempted, as we often do, to think, goodness, my productivity is out the window. If I can just crank a few more minutes or a few more hours out of this day, then I can do it. Or if we get tempted to think, well, I'm not getting quite enough sleep, so I'll just throw that out, and, and, uh, or maybe I'll sleep the whole day away and forget work. Who needs that? <laughs> because I'm not well, and I need this for myself. You're not, you're not in charge of the days and the minutes and the hours and the seasons, and you don't have to be. God made time to be more like the sand on a beach than the sand in an hourglass. This time that we have is supposed to be something that we rest in, we enjoy, and we exercise under his dominion and under his control because he didn't give it to us. But the other thing that we need to know as we read this is that the light of God is God's, but so is the image of God. It is the image of God. It belongs to him. It is a reflection of him and his character. And you'll note as we look at verses 26 and 27 here, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That covers everything except the lights in creation and except for man. And that's not to say, as, as somebody uh, understood what I was saying the other day, that's not to say none of us have any authority over anybody else. Uh, and so I was grateful to, to clarify, that's not what I mean, right? Uh, parents, you do have authority over your children. Elders, you do have the authority that God has given to you uh, over the church. But you don't have the authority over the image of God in man. We don't get to tell other people what it looks like to be God apart from God. We can go to God's word and we can say, this is what it means to be made in the image of man, but we don't get to walk up to other people and say, see what I'm doing? You should do this just like me. Aren't I so wonderful? And yet this is exactly the rebellion that we see so often in the world, right? Setting up ourselves as an authority over mankind. This is, this is exactly where, how we got where we are in history and in society because we have set ourselves up not only as the crown of creation but as the one who bestows the crown. We have set ourselves up as rulers against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break our bonds asunder. Let us cast off these chains. We have tried to be the rulers that we are not made to be when we take the image of God and we try to make it ours. But the image of God is God's and it's a reflection of him and of his character. I put in your outlines uh, from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter four, section one, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. And a lot of times we like to think we have this knowledge thing down, right? Many of us like to pride ourselves in the knowledge that we have, but we don't have the knowledge this is talking about. We don't have the perfect, all-knowing knowledge of God, and we certainly do not have righteousness and true holiness in God's image, right? This is fallen. When Adam and Eve took and ate from the fruit of the garden, this image of God fell, The great 
self-portrait of the greatest master was tarnished. And we know that because we're trying to take the throne. We know that because we're trying to have control over the days and the seasons and the hours that we don't have. And we're trying to set ourselves up to be an image of our own selves and not of the God of the universe. That is not our domain. It's not our responsibility. Our job and our responsibility and our domain is to obey and to reflect the image of God given to us in creation. And we have to reflect accurately because God's image is God's and not ours. And it's to be a mirror that actually points back to the one who made us. The problem is we're fallen beings. We are not good image bearers like the sun, moon, and stars are good light bearers. We're veiled up, we're covered up, and something has got to be done. And that brings us to our third and final point this evening, that we have to reflect God's character through Christ, who alone is the true light and image of God. We have to reflect God's character through Christ, who alone is the true light and image of God. There are a number of art conservators who have spent the last few years working on a now rather famous Rembrandt painting, Uh, The painting is entitled The Night Watch. Uh, Maybe you've heard of it or maybe come across an article over it the last year or two. Uh, The painting is is probably two-thirds the size of the wall that's behind me, Uh, and at least it was when it was first put in on display. When they moved it from its gallery position over to the city hall, the wall in city hall was smaller, so they lopped off three, four feet off the top and they cut off one or two feet off the side, and they just moved it and threw everything away. And in the 1920s, uh, somebody thought it would be fun to, to further maim the painting, and they took a knife and slashed seven cuts through the center of the painting. And in the 1970s, and again in the 1990s, somebody ran up to the painting with acid and sprayed acid on the painting. And there was a guard there on the occasion who took out a water bottle knowing that would neutralize the acid and he splashed it on the acid, which did neutralize the acid, but it also got water on the painting. <laughs> and they've spent the last few years scanning and x-raying and MRIing and everything they can to, to analyze this painting uh, in an attempt to, to restore it in the, the wisest and best way possible. And that's a work in progress. And this sounds like a terrible story, and it is. It's a lot of terrible stories to a beautiful work of art by an incredible master. But we have to remember, when we come to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, that the image that God painted here is a so much more beautiful image than even a great Rembrandt. And something so much worse happened to it than slashing and spraying with acid, and cutting off a few ends and edges here and there. No, this image was completely distorted by sin. And that didn't just happen in Adam. It happens in you, and it happens in me from the moment we're born. Surely I was born in sin, sinful when conceived within my mother's womb. That that is the image of God in us. It's a tainted, scarred, maimed, acid-splashed masterpiece that needs restoration. And while it's true that something so much worse than what happened to this Rembrandt happened in the image of God, we can also take hope that something so much better than what these restorers are doing 
is happening to the image of God. Something so much greater. There is a great restorer. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And Paul tells us that Jesus is the very image of God, not that he's a maimed image of God, not that he's a reflection of the image of God. He is, as uh, the author of Hebrews tells us, an imprint of the very nature of God. He is everything that God is when he created light and when he created man and when he endowed us with these reflections of his character. There is not a thing that is lacking when Jesus Christ came into this world as a human being living a perfect life a perfectly unaltered, unmaimed image of God, a real self-portrait walked this earth. He broke into the history of humanity and he injected a fresh start by living for us and by dying for us, by taking that maimed image of God and being destroyed But death couldn't keep him. And it doesn't keep us who are purchased in him anymore. Those verses right before that in Colossians, verses 13 and 14 said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He takes us from the kingdom of darkness and he brings us to a kingdom of light. Where sin does not have dominion. Sin doesn't encroach anymore. But the one who has dominion and rule over that place is the rightful king. And we don't any longer try to set ourselves up as king there anymore. And we see that, that Jesus not only presents the unsullied image of God, but he's actually capable of conquering darkness This is what he does when he transfers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. Jesus is capable of discerning and separating light from darkness greater than anyone else. We read that when the day comes, he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate the wheat from the tares. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God because he does what God does, and he does it perfectly. He's even greater than the sun in the sky at this. And that's why it's important as we we recognize that God created the light on the first day and he creates the sun, moon, and stars three days later on the fourth day. He also does something else three days later. He sets up an eternal Sabbath rest that can only be found in Christ, right? And that sun that sits in the sky is supposed to be a reminder of signs and seasons, including the Sabbath that would be made three days later. And it should not surprise us at all when in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son is supposed to have some kind of rule in order to display for us the Sabbath. It's supposed to rule over the earth by day, and this is the seventh day, and now Christ is knocking even the Son out of its place of authority. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And it shouldn't surprise us in another episode where he says that he has authority over the image of God in man as well. Just a couple chapters before this, Jesus indicates that he has authority that none of us have in Matthew 9, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that encapsulates the great restoring work of the great master. Christ forgave sins and he took this broken person and told him to stand. And he revealed an authority not only that light has on the day, but that God alone has or the image of God. So it should not surprise us that when Jesus breaks into the kingdom of darkness and he announces what we read in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light and he does something the sun is incapable of. He does something humanity is incapable of doing. He delegates the light and the image of God to us anew. And he makes us light bearers again and he makes us image bearers again as we read in the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 35. What is sanctification? What is this process of us becoming set apart throughout life? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. I also put in your outline Revelation chapter 22, verses three through five. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This earth and these heavens and even the sun and the moon will pass away. But the enduring light and image of God found in Jesus Christ will never pass away. So no matter what darkness you're facing, and even if you find yourself in the kingdom of darkness, there is hope and a light in the great restorer who made the masterpiece of this universe and the masterpiece of you if we're found in him. So we have to remember, church, our job, our task, is to reflect God's character through Christ, who alone is the true light and image of God. Let us pray. Our God, as we sang in Psalm 8, how excellent your name, that you made all of these things, and even when we look to the sun, moon, and stars, above us. It causes us to shrink in awe that you should make us as well. And yet, Lord, we remember the privileged position that we have in creation, bearing the very image of God on this earth. We know that in sin we are torn and maimed. We pray, Lord, that we would remember each day the salvation that we have in Christ alone, the only one who perfectly bore your image and your light into a world that is very dark. We pray that as we go forth, as we've been remade in the image of God, that we would bear your light, that we would sing forth your truth to a world that needs more and more light.
We pray this all in his blessed and holy name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Psalter to Psalm 19, Selection A. Psalm uh, very much takes this imagery. I'm sorry. No, it is 19A. I uh, forwarded the wrong thing to Alina. It's 19A. The psalm teaches us so much about what God has created in the heavens. Right at the very opening, the skies above declare the glory of our God. This is what we just read. The firmament displays his handiwork abroad. And even as we read in this third and fourth stanza, in heaven he pitched a tent. This is the sun. He gave the sun its place. And with an athlete's joy, it thrills to run its race. It rises glorious like a groom when he emerges from his room. And surely when the sun rises each morning and traces its way across the sky, it reminds us of the great bridegroom who has pursued his people and brought them to union with him. Let's stand and sing Psalm 19a.